0: Welcome to Prima's 2020 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Deborah Watkins will discuss medical treatment and costs associated with COVID-19. Deborah is the founder and chief disruption officer at CareBridge International. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwan Gilbert. Taekwan will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you, and thank you everyone for joining me. I very much want this important topic to give you some tools that you can take away and apply immediately. And so, with that, I'm going to start with a little background and then dive right in to some of these the treatment and the cost so that you can understand at a claim level what this exposure looks like. So, one of the biggest challenges that you're going to face in the coming months is how to effectively handle a deluge of claims that are related to the COVID-19. And for a lot of organizations, you may already be starting to see this, but there's going to be a sudden uptick in claims activity putting an enormous strain on your resources that may already be at capacity. So we want to try and offer you, again, some information and tools that you can use now. So officially named a pandemic by the World Health Organization on March 11, the novel COVID-19 virus work was named March 11 it's actually part of a family of coronaviruses that has disrupted the healthcare, it's disrupted economy worldwide around the globe. And the coronaviruses this is called a novel virus because it's a new strain, meaning it hasn't been previously identified and its causes are, you know, still being learned. But the immediate and early symptoms of fever, cough, and shortness of breath were some of the first symptoms that we saw. There are a range of severity in this condition. In very severe cases, the virus can cause pneumonia or worse, a severe acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is also known by the name of ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome. And some folks have even had kidney failure, organ failure, and leading to death. It's highly contagious. As we all know, it originated in Wuhan, China. That particular city has a population of 11 million people and the virus spread very quickly, having early on dire consequences for people who are frail and elderly just like we've seen in the U.S. People with comorbid conditions, specifically cardiopulmonary conditions, chronic disease such as diabetes, those folks account for 40% of the U.S. population of the coronavirus found in 40% of our U.S. population. Globally, there have been more than 4 million confirmed cases. And in the United States, out of the 4 million, we've had 1.5 million positive cases. We've seen the virus in all 50 states, including Washington, D.C., and four of the U.S. territories. And we've had 90,000 deaths. And this incidence it varies from state to state. As we're aware, some states were more heavily affected, like New York, California, and Florida. And that really was dependent upon several factors. You know, the density of a population in an area contributed to the incidence, the demographics in terms of the aging, you know, folks like Florida, predominantly an aging population, also, the extent of testing has had a bearing on our understanding of the incidence of coronavirus. But cumulatively, outbreaks in long-term care facilities and in homeless shelters have been disproportionately affected because these individuals are in that demographic having more chronic conditions, diabetes heart disease, pulmonary disease, and the like, more fragile folks. You know, a wide range of symptoms have been reported, but primarily it's been the coughing, shortness of breath is really once you have a cough and a fever, many of those folks have been able to manage at home, some not even aware that they've had coronavirus, They've been able to manage very effectively with just some normal home care. But then when you start to see the symptoms of shortness of breath, it becomes more critical. And at that point is where the majority of people have sought medical treatment. And we'll start to get into, again, the cost, the transmission of The coronavirus, COVID-19, is very much like SARS. We've learned that it's the respiratory droplets, it's through the air, it's being in contact, close enough contact with other people to contract the virus, but also contaminated surfaces. If I've contaminated a surface and someone comes behind me shortly thereafter and touches the surface, or touches their nose or face or eyes or mouth, they're at risk for receiving the virus or being contracting the virus. And these symptoms appear two to 14 days after you've been exposed. So once you've been exposed, or you've come in contact with the virus, within two to 14 days, the symptoms begin to appear. The symptoms of cough, again, fever, chills. Some people have had muscle pains or aches, the just sort of a generalized achiness, joint pain, sore throat. Again, some often confuse it with allergy season or a cold or flu. And they really never know they've had it. But if it progresses and you develop the shortness of breath or you, in some cases, some people have reported nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, that has driven some to seek medical care. So while most people have been asymptomatic and recovered with very minimal care, if any care, the medical exposure as a compensable workers' comp event is a growing concern because many of these folks who are going to present with a compensable work injury related to coronavirus are healthcare workers, are frontline paramedics, the folks on the front lines of trying to You know, treat and provide for the people with symptoms, healthcare workers broadly, but also other essential workers, people like housekeepers, other ancillary staff in a hospital or a rehab or a care facility, other folks, again, first responders, even our grocery workers, people who have come to the grocery store to provide for us. Truckers, the trucking community in particular, this has really taken a toll on them, trying to get supplies all across the country. As you've seen probably on the news, even a lot of the meat packing factories, places that are trying to package the foods that we eat, these folks have had workplace exposures. And, those costs are still being analyzed. The most current figures are in the billions of exposures, and NCCI, if you've not seen it, has some great material about the potential exposures. We're still learning about it. But to get to a more granular understanding of the costs, you know, you are going to start to see individual claims. And you're going to see individual bills related to claims. And the question is, is going to become, wow, you know, is that a reasonable number? So to give you some context for mild symptoms, mild to moderate symptoms of coronavirus, again, something that looks like a cold or flu, those costs if a person... Sought treatment in a physician's office or an urgent care clinic or emergency room can range anywhere from $400 to $3,500. And so, what you're looking at is when one of those individuals presents to a doctor's office or urgent care, obviously, the first thing they're going to do is see a care provider, a practitioner, a physician a nurse practitioner, and they're going to have some lab work drawn, generally a CBC or a chemistry profile, but they also were running a lot of blood oxygen levels, looking at pulse oximetry, so there's charges for those little machines to find out if there's an oxygen problem. One of the things that was identified early on is that when you present with symptoms, if in fact you're looking at coronavirus Oddly, these people presented with very low oxygen on a pulse oximeter, 60 to 70%. And that's very unusual. If you have cold or flu, you just don't see that. So that was an early indicator of coronavirus diagnostically. Another thing that you'll see is a lot of office visits, clinics would go ahead and run an influenza test to see, will the flu You know, is this the flu as compared to COVID-19? And then they would run the COVID-19 lab test, which is actually two tests. There is one test that they run to actually diagnose the coronavirus, but there's another test that's required by the Center for Disease Control. And that lab sample was literally sent to Atlanta to the CDC. And so how the testing works, and one of the reasons why it has taken so long, takes 10 days to get a result back, is because the test had to be reported to the CDC. And even though your, your local lab might have an answer in two days, they weren't allowed to release it until the CDC confirmed a diagnosis and recorded it as a positive or a negative, and that process of running the lab test through the CDC, having it recorded, and the result returned to a local lab was 8 to 10 days. So it's really like two tests that you see. Another thing that we started to see early on that began to spike was with all of this activity, there was a sudden spike in telemedicine. Out of nowhere, the gates opened up for telemedicine. It became the prudent thing, easy to access. Medicare eliminated the regulation, as did many entities, eliminated the regulations around telemedicine, allowing it. So many people were making phone calls and having telemedicine visits. So that is why and even in a mild case, your cost could range anywhere from 400 to $3,500. For a moderate condition, you would start to see a little bit more. These are folks that may have then started to have other symptoms or having comorbid conditions. The physicians wanted to run a few more tests like EKGs, chest X-rays, or chest CAT scans, you know, CT scans, you start to see a few more diagnostic tests in the medical treatment. And then, in some cases, they may have even been sent to the hospital. A person with a moderate condition may have been sent to the hospital and spent a day or two in a regular unit, not intensive care, but on the floor in a hospital. They were monitored Their condition didn't get any worse, and then they were allowed to go home. So you can have some costs in there for hospital treatment in a regular bed, absent any intensive care, and then still absent a severity, but a situation that was enough of a concern that it was important that this person was monitored in the hospital. Then we get into the real severe scenario, and for severe symptoms, that concern really began when the person reported shortness of breath. If a person was reporting shortness of breath, and then they were placed on, as I mentioned, a pulse oximeter, what you would often find was a low blood oxygenation. You could see that there was they were not oxygenating well. Their body was simply not getting the oxygen. And those reasons often related to what was happening pneumonia, in many cases, where the little air sacs in the lungs would fill up with fluid in both lungs in most cases. And an individual would develop this viral, you know, coronavirus pneumonia, and they had positive findings, little crystals, what was what? was how it was described on a chest X-ray, leading to what could be a much more life-threatening situation. And so you may see some claims that have a diagnosis of pneumonia, actual pneumonia, bronchitis, or ARDS, the acute respiratory distress syndrome, and these were your very severe cases. These were the claims where folks were Literally, not only admitted to the hospital, but they were placed in an intensive care unit. And if they were to develop the acute respiratory distress syndrome, placed on the mechanical ventilation. The average hospitalization, according to the Kaiser Health Network, was six days, but for some of these individuals on mechanical ventilation, Some other studies show that it was up to 10 days. So a hospital day that's 10 days long can become very costly. These costs, when a person was presented with a severe condition of COVID-19, those costs ranged anywhere from $9,000 to $20,000 if you were hospitalized upwards to $55,000 for an inpatient admission, but if you're on mechanical ventilation, there are even uh, statistical numbers that show those price costs can be 78 dollars to $90,000 per hospitalization. So, very costly getting into those six-figure numbers for an individual claim. So when you start to, to think about the impact of that, fortunately, you know, 80-20 rule similarly has applied here. And the majority, the vast majority, have been mild cases. Your really severe cases, the hospitalized, even though it felt because our hospitals were overwhelmed, and it was on the news every day and it was very it was terrifying truly that was the smaller volume that was your 20% those were the people on the mechanical ventilation and a percentage again of those didn't survive it's about 30% that did not survive now that being said there are some long-term consequences the question is okay Well, now if I see a claim and I notice that you notice that the person had ARDS and then you can anticipate that likely there was a hospitalization in the intensive care unit and expect, you know, to run those very high numbers. But then the question becomes, is there going to be any long term future care? You know, will there be longer term exposure? after these bills are paid? And the answer to that is is actually yes. It's still evolving, but one of the things that we do know, what is known about the long-term impact and some of the long-term complications and costs that you can continue to anticipate is more long-term uh, respiratory compromise. People who had the ARDS will recover, you know, most of those folks recovered, but they can have some lasting long-term pulmonary scarring that impacts their lung capacity, and what that would mean for them for the long term as an injured worker is it would be more difficult for them to do manual or heavy type work. They simply will have less lung capacity and less ability to compensate. There is an indication that it's reversible, but what's questionable and unknown right now is how long does this last? It's not clear. So that's something that we're watching as an organization to try to understand better are these long-term effects. Another long-term complication is cardiomyopathy. It's been found that these folks, many, particularly those that presented with a pre-existing heart condition and even some that did not have a pre-existing heart condition, after they've had this exposure to coronavirus and they've had a severe course of symptoms and treatment, what happens is their heart muscle weakens. And it's much harder for the heart to pump blood to their body. That's the cardiomyopathy aspect of it, which can lead to heart failure or a poor cardiac output. And again, you know, if this is permanent, cardiac output, if it's reduced, limits a person's stamina or their ability to perform heavy work or prolonged walking or work that requires more exertion. So you can start to anticipate for some of these people, they'll have a more long-term cardiac condition that, if work-related, could present a long-term exposure when you settle the claim to treat a heart condition, cardiomyopathy. And another couple of issues are some neurocognitive impairments have been identified. Really, this is not uncommon for folks who have been on a prolonged period of time on mechanical ventilation or for a more prolonged period of time. They've had low oxygen to their bodies. That translates to lower oxygen to the brain. And when that happens, you can start to have some cognitive changes. You know, short term or long term memory, word finding difficulties, or, you know, challenges with math and executive function. And we're still learning what are the true impacts of that, but it appears to be very much aligned with what we see with people who have been on prolonged mechanical ventilation, their functional losses that mirror the types of things that you see when there's been low oxygen to the brain for an extended period of time. And so as a work-related injury, that can pose a a challenge for someone returning to a job that requires a preciseness of executive thinking. You'll need to start looking at that. And from a long-term care perspective, you know, what does that mean for cognitive exercises and retraining. And lastly, there's the underlying depression and anxiety and the anticipation that for some of these folks is PTSD. It has been very mentally challenging to be in a scenario like this alone, separated from family and friends and support, the long-term impact of depression and anxiety, there's certainly short-term treatment for that. And in some, in a fraction of the cases, we may need to anticipate, particularly for people with pre-existing, you know, anxieties, some more pronounced symptoms and, and the requirement for a longer term treatment regimen to help them get back to a normal state. For the short term, some physical deconditioning, you should really anticipate once some of these folks who've been hospitalized that they'll need some physical therapy to get back on their feet and get reconditioned and build their bodies back up and to get strong enough to return to work and return to normal life and be able to perform their full activities of daily living, but of course with some physical therapy, in most cases, that should resolve itself and and really just look like a short-term care. So that's really what you can anticipate. And then to talk a little bit about some of the future that's unfolding every day are the testing, is testing. There's really two kinds of testing right now. Viral tests that can determine whether you have the virus or you do not have the virus. And then there's antibody tests that will tell you that not only did you have the virus, but you also have the antibodies that will protect you from any future exposure. And I think that is really the good news around this is that the scientific community is telling us that the IgG, which is an immunoglobulin that is the marker that says Yes, if you have this antibody, then you've developed some protection from getting this in the future, is what we see with this virus. It's an IgG antibody. So once you've had it, there's a good possibility that your body has built up enough that you should not get it again. Again, does that mean no one will get it again? We're not sure but these tests are available. They cost about $50. The testing is really dependent upon the state and local level. The states are dictating the tests and the guidance around testing, and the local communities are driving that, and where these testing stations are, who can test first, and so on. So you'll want to check with your state and local authority for information around the testing. CMS is charging $100 per test for Medicare beneficiaries. I expect that cost may drop over time as testing becomes more readily available. And the vaccine, the good news is there are six contenders out there now with vaccine development getting closer to a vaccine. Those vaccines, once they're made available to the public, what was released today, only today, is that cost is anticipated to be around 10 to $20 per vaccine. So very affordable. When that vaccine is available, you know, you really want to support the vaccine. It's a low cost, a very low cost to prevent something that, as you could see, can be very, very high cost. And lastly, how does this affect you? I know you're paying attention to what's going on out there. There's been so much legislation, particularly in the workers' comp arena, in just the last few weeks, states coming forward with their presumption or other guidance. And to date, there are a number of states, 17, that have either presumption Guidance and they're accepting presumption on these cases, or like California, it may include some essential workers as well. But those states and you want to be aware of Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Florida, Illinois, Kentucky, Minnesota, Michigan, Missouri, North Dakota, New Jersey. Pennsylvania, Utah, Washington, Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, and lastly, Wisconsin. And I appreciate your participation today. It's my great pleasure to be able to present this topic. It's something that I'm very passionate about. And our company is a free service because this, the, the urgency around trying to understand this We developed a tool. It's free to you. You can access it online at www.analyticpoweredcovid19.com. That's analyticpoweredcovid19.com, where you can access a free calculator and run some individual scenarios to try to understand the costs of an individual claim. And we hope that you find this helpful as you continue through this journey and this trying time of trying to manage this COVID-19 pandemic and the impact that it's had on your business and on your injured workers. Thank you for your time today. And thank you, Prima. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.